this is my book. They said this would be fun. Uh, so I wrote this book. I've been writing it actually for 10 years and it came out in March and um, we're actually in second print. So I think that says a lot about these conversations and the importance of having these conversations right now. And uh, so I'm going to read a passage from my book. And in a nutshell, my book is about my experience going to Western University as a very shy, very sheltered teenager and finding out that the university experience that I had hoped to have that I'd seen in movies was not anything like that. Um, and so a lot of times when I talk about this book, I talk about it, I talk about race and race is a very big part of this book. But this book is also about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a woman of color and what it means to try and fit in and grow up and find your footing and your place in the world when you're in that weird age between being a teenager and becoming an adult. And so in keeping with our conversation today, I'm actually going to be reading, I'm really excited about this part, I'm going to be reading a passage from this, this chapter um, about the one time that I had dated a white man who ended up uh, using me as um, the first black girl that he had ever um, dated. And this was a big part of my book and it was actually, um, I had written about this for the Huffington Post, it was the first article I had written in my career as a journalist, and I thought it was really important to write about because in first year, uh, especially if you move off, if you move into um, away from university, or away from home, and you're off university for the first time, there are a lot of different experiences that we have, and one of them is relationships. And um, for me, I found myself in this relationship where there was a lot of sexual racism, a lot of tokenism, and being used as this kind of racial novelty for somebody. And so, I'm going to pick up. This chapter is called Anthony, My Italian Greek Tragedy. And this is a part of the book where I try to do the walk of shame like all the other white women I'd seen doing the walk of shame at home. And it turns out that um, black women are not afforded this privilege. And so I get into this um, as well as finding out that this man, Anthony, that um, he has been using me to be kind of like a, um, a check on his bucket list of uh, sleeping with black women. Where white men have the, where men have the privilege of having sex without repercussions, Women are always crucified for wanting sex. For women of color, this relationship is complicated by deeply entrenched stereotypes about our sexuality. For centuries, black women have been called Jezebels, freaks, and hottentots. We've been labeled primitive, always ready for sex, and always willing to give it. White women have long been expected to adhere and aspire to the cult of domesticity, the true womanhood, piety, submission, and purity, whereas Black women are considered inherently and irredeemably incapable of possessing these qualities. Instead, Black women face what Black feminist scholar Patricia Hill Collins calls controlling images, stereotypes and tropes that contribute to the sexual objectification that seeks to keep us oppressed. In her 1990 Holy Grail Black Feminist Thought, Collins says that these controlling images are always changing and adapting, each becoming a new starting point for a cultural moment that creates new forms of oppression and commercialization. In other words, the names may change as we evolve, ratchet, thoughts, bad bitches, but they are still rooted in the same oppressive, damaging narratives about Black women's sexuality. As casual sex and hookup culture become more prevalent, and the images associated with Black women change in name but continue to be reinforced, it becomes harder for Black women to reclaim their sexuality. Women are already demonized for wanting sex. For a Black woman who is already dealing with stereotypes about her animalistic, insatiable sexuality, it is almost impossible for her to say she likes sex without facing judgment and slut-shaming. 
These damaging images have become normalized in our culture and are commonplace. Is it true that black women are good in bed? I've never had sex with a black woman. Can you be my first? Once you go black, you never go back. It can, make it, hard to it can make it hard to find and have a respectful sexual relationship or any relationship at all that isn't tainted by the idea of a black woman's uncontrollable sexuality and how someone can benefit. To be a black woman today means, to li means living in constant hyper-awareness of your body. There are voyeuristic eyes on us at all times, objectifying us into parts. When we date non-black people, we know that we, not our partners, are sexualized. We know the sexual connotations of the word interracial. We battle with the myth that our bodies are dirty, raunchy, deviant, animalistic, and ungodly. I used to see girls walk home barefoot on London's maid road at 8 a.m., holding their vodka-covered stilettos in one hand and using the other to keep their dress from riding up. Guys wandered the streets with disheveled hair and undone dress shirts and no clue where they were. Walk of shamers were as common as morning joggers. Students, old enough to be, old enough in the public psyche to be sexually active, yet young enough to be messy, hedonistic wrongdoers, get a pass to publicly express sexuality for four years. And this has afforded young women more freedom to take charge of their sex lives. Running back home at dawn with a ripped shirt or a broken stiletto heel is a time-restricted, socially accepted norm for white students. To do the walk of shame as a black woman is to confront stereotypes about our sexuality head on using the same tools and words that oppress us. It's reclaiming the right to celebrate our sexuality in public. It's releasing ourselves from the bonds that have kept us shackled and oppressed in our communities, in society, and within ourselves. In recent years, young women have been using the power of collective walking to take back their right to have consensual sex and celebrate it. Take Back the Night, which started in the 1970s, has grown to an international event on a mission to end sexual and partner violence. Slut Walk began in 2011 after a Toronto police officer told female students at a safety forum at York University that they shouldn't dress like sluts if they wanted to avoid sexual assault. It is now a global movement in over 200 cities and over 40 countries. For years, Black feminists in the US have argued that Slut Walk excludes Black women. Amber Rose has started her own Slut Walk several years ago as a response to slut shaming from both tabloids and her exes Wiz Khalifa and Kanye West. Rose's movement has made space for Black women to condemn sexual injustice and victim blaming, while also promoting sex positivity and highlighting the unique challenges that we face. Sexual liberation is different for us. From the late 90s, white women could look up to this, their Sex in the City idols, who iconically scandalized television with the idea that women could have sex like men. And the next generation of white girls followed in the footsteps of characters from its successor, girls. For young women of color, however, it's more complicated. Who do black girls have to look up to on the screens? Where are our brunch table conversations about vibrators and orgasms and sex and love? Few shows and films have given us accurate contemporary representations of black womanhood that are unapologetically sexual. In recent years, we've been graced with Olivia Pope, Annalise Keating, Nola Darling, and the ladies of Girls, Trips, Girls Trip. But other betrayals are still stigmatizing, and few films and TV shows like this have been made while had been made while I was at university. Even reality TV shows like Basketball Wives, Real Housewives of Atlanta, Love and Hip Hop, and others craft the image of oversexed Black women who are gold diggers, freaks, or baby makers, unable to have healthy and faithful relationships or friendships. Some hip hop artists are still branding any sex-loving woman as a thought, a hoe, or a chicken head. 
Movies continue to portray black women as sexual deviants, undeserving of love. And if we do attempt to explore our sexuality, we are punished by losing everything. In Tyler Perry's Temptations, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, lead character Judith cheats on her husband and is punished by getting HIV. She grows old alone while her husband gets happily remarried to a younger woman. And Perry has a history of playing into negative punishing stereotypes of black women in his films. I knew the racist constructions of black female sexuality were impositions of society, and yet I still felt so ashamed of, sitting, of myself sitting on that couch. I wanted to be like other women, to have a hookup and not worry about the additional stigma, to have sex like men do, to own my sexuality. But that morning, being judged by that woman in that fancy condo building, I felt like a cavity of darkness. So I'll stop there, but um, after that I talk about kind of the fallout of what happens and how um, I'm unable to kind of process this relationship and this exotification. And I read a Bell Hooks article or a Bell Hooks chapter where she talks about, um, it's called Eating the Other, Desire and Resistance, where she actually talks about this phenomenon of um, white men kind of looking to find black women uh, to check out their bucket list as well as hypersexuality of black women. Um, and it kind of just changing everything for me. So um, yeah, I will end there. All right. Uh, thank you, Eternity, for that passage. I, I got the chance to reread a couple of pages this morning and I was like, wow, like it almost felt like I was reading it for, for the first time again. Um, so I'll start with saying on behalf of Black Lock Collective, myself, Flavi, we want to say thank you to the Kingston Frontenac Public Library, you know, the sponsors and also Eternity for being here with us virtually. I remember when Graham and Lavi and I were having like our first meeting talking about this and you know the first thought that came to our minds was like we have to talk to Eternity Martyrs mostly because of the parallels that happen you know living in a city like like London going to Western and us being situated here in Kingston and knowing the infrastructures and the system that really really perpetrate anti-blackness in, in both cities and how deep they run. Um, we, we just thought that it was so relatable, particularly as well as we do anti-racism work at the university and being able to connect with a lot of the student experiences in your book. Uh, but for tonight, we thought like, what particularly takes us today to the framing of this conversation is talking about love and relationship as two young black women, me somewhat in the dating scene at this point, you know, exploring that, but really like talking, Lavi and I were talking about this and how, you know, love and dating is not, is not being talked about through the black woman experience and the fetishization and the harm that comes out of this. And, and it tends to be ignored in, in conversations about around sexual assault, around sexual and gender-based violence. Um, so we thought to really focus on that today. Um, and last uh, kind of intro that I'll do is just major props to you for this impeccable like piece of like work and, and book and, and really just truth. You know, when, when I read, when I was reading your book, I remember there are many points I had to pause and just be like, oh my gosh, like eternity is speaking so much truth right now. Part of it is like uncomfortable because of how real it is, but like at the same time, it's like, yes, like this is what, like this is what I've experienced in many ways. So just major respect and uh, with this book and so much of the other work that you do, uh, it's, it's very valuable and it's great to see black women taking up space in this way as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, so Lavi, I don't know if you want to just introduce yourself real quick and just say hello to, to everyone. 
Um, yes. Hello, everyone. I'm Lavi, um, and I'm going to be speaking with Mofi and Eternity. And as Mofi said, we'll be focusing on dating and love, which we're really excited to talk about, uh, primarily because particularly when it comes to Black experiences or anti-Black racism, um, we find that this kind of drops off a little bit. Um, and it was uh, very present in Eternity's uh, book as a, as, a, as a present theme. And um, it's what all of us have gone through or are going through in terms of finding ourselves um, and finding um, our community and the people that we want to be with and be surrounded with. Um, and so we're going to jump in with our first question that kind of, you know, I, we think is a great entry point into this conversation around the journey of self-acceptance and self-actualization. Um, and so, you know, Eternity, uh, your book details a lot of that. I mean, that's pretty much the entire book, I think. Um, and, you know, looking back, you do you believe that the reality of having to fight for yourself, because in the book you say you had to fight for yourself before you understood yourself or knew who you were, um, do you think that that had an, an impact on your understanding of what dating or what sexuality looks like for you, particularly going into university and you're saying, you know, they said that this would be fun. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to explore, make the mistakes, but, you know, find myself in the end. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, for me and for those of you who have read the book, I, I was incredibly sheltered. And on my mom's side, my maternal side is actually from Pakistan. And I think like many cultures, you don't really talk about sex and you don't talk about what's happening to your body. And so I would kind of go to the, you know, to chapters and sneak a couple of books in about like, you know, um, about sex, about sexuality. But I had just assumed that once I left the house, I'd be able to explore all those things. And what ended up happening was kind of right off the bat, kind of just being in my dorm and being around other people, instead of figuring out what my sexuality was, what sex would look like, what relationships would look like, or even love, or how I saw myself as a sexual being, it was already defined for me. And it was defined in the fact that, oh, well, you know, once you go black, you never go back. I've heard that black girls are good in bed. And so there were all these things thrown on me and at the same time, the word black was so new to me coming from a family where I'm, uh, my, my dad is black, but we never talked about it at home. And so all these things were happening at once where suddenly I was black. And if I tried to say, well, you know, like I'm mixed, it was like, nope, you're black. And so that was the first problem. The second problem was being around, you know, other people and everyone having relationships and not even getting a chance to explain who I was because people had already an assumption about my my sexuality or my hypersexuality. And I, it's hard to defend. You can't defend it. You can't really say anything because you don't even know yourself um, and you don't want to give into it. But at the same time, like you said, you want to have fun. And so you kind of just dive head first into everything and then kind of you pay the, for the, con the consequences later. I think that really, because in your book, you, you write about how you went to university and you had a boyfriend uh, at the time yes. uh, as you entered university. And similarly for me, I think, well, no, I think I know I had a boyfriend <laughs> when I went to university um, and my boyfriend, like you, I had, um, I met him in high school um, and he, he wasn't black. He, uh, his family was from Lebanon. Um, and what I found really um it was like a small point in your book, but I think really connects to this 
topic of anti-Black racism and how that shows up in relationships and particularly interracial relationships where uh, your boyfriend's mother was saying, you know, I can't believe that's your girlfriend. She's dirty. She's bad. Um, and that connects to an experience. I think I was super aware of that even in high school about, you know, having partners and if they weren't Black, knowing that their family would just intrinsically not like me. Um, that I like told him, I was like, you know, I need you to tell me everything that your parents say about me. Yes. I need to know where I stand. Um, and who knows if he actually did that. But one of the things that he did say to me that his mom had said to him is he lived in Malvern, uh, which has a high population of black people. Um, and they were going up into their apartment in an elevator. And this black woman with her baby came into the elevator and the mom said to him is that what you want your baby to look like um and you know i think that the fact that at an age of about 17 i was already prepared to say like well i don't really care that i would also be facing this like abuse from like my partner's family um yeah. is something that really stays with me for or has stayed with me for a really long time and i don't think it will ever leave me but I, the, the fact that that was also in your book, and, and I don't think it necessarily gets talked about around, you know, the way that for a lot of Black women, and there are so many stories out there who, like, have to accept this idea that their partner's family, like, are, are, are disrespectful, don't like them, don't treat them well. And then, you know, sometimes that uh, um, rubs off on the children, if, if there are children in that relationship. Yes, absolutely. And um, I think that for us, for Black women, it's, that's your first introduction into your sexuality before you might not, before you're probably even having sex is people, your partner's parents sexualizing you, but also equating that sexuality with deviance and darkness. And my, my boyfriend at the time was Asian and his mom, and it was, it was so interesting to see because the, the so-called stereotype that she believed about Black people um, I have a, I had a grandfather who helped me, he was very supportive, um, I was educated, I was well-spoken, and yet there were all these stereotypes put against me because I was this color, and um, it's kind of, it kind of stays with you, and I think that maybe for you too, Lobby, but I watch, I love 90 Day Fiance, but I watch 90 Day Fiance, and I see the ways that the families um, clash, especially like I think one, one of the characters, Colt, his mom was always like, oh, another Brazilian girl. And in my mind, I'm like, I would never put up with someone's family. But I think it's because from an early age, I've, I've already been told like, you know, you're dirty just by virtue of you being black. I don't want you with my, with my son, my daughter, with, with, with anybody in my family. You've tainted my child. Um, and it sticks with you and it stays with you as you go on and you learn as you're older that you're not actually going to put up with that. But then everyone around me is like, oh, I guess I'll put up with like, you know, my in-laws or I'll put up with my, my partner's parents. And I'm like, no, if you, if this started at a young age, you wouldn't, you'd be scarred. Yeah, I agree. I think you're muted, Mofi. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, there's, yeah, thank you, Graham. It wasn't letting me on mute. I, I, I think like something that stands out to me as well when, when you were reading, when you're talking about the chapter and even this conversation is around, you know, what messages we have been, like what messages are told about Black people, about Black women, um, as well as, you know, not talking about these experiences. But what stands out to me in your writing is being able to name things. You know, you talk about this as harm and as and as assault on the body um, and even as sexual racism. So I wonder, like, how did you get to a point to be able to name and identify your experiences in this way? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think I have, I think I actually have my women's studies degree to thank me. And it's because I think I was going through all these new experiences with my body, with how I felt in my body, despite not being able to articulate it. And that's where it came from was, um, the racism itself kept me indoors most of the time. I withdrew from class. I was anxious. I was overeating. I was drinking too much. I was breaking out. And nobody could tell me why that was happening, but I knew it to be true. And then in, this, in the chapter that I read with this guy, Anthony, when that had happened, so I, I was so used to being out at nighttime and hearing white guys saying like, oh, like, will you dance with my friend? He's never danced with a white, with a black girl. And this guy didn't say any of that. And so for me, that was that test of like, okay, maybe he's not racist. So when, if that, when I found out just kind of looking on Twitter that he was into black girls and he was actually following a lot of black porn stars, it told me something about the type of sexuality that he thought we had. And this conversation in the book where he says like, you know, my grandmother would never want me to have a black baby. And I couldn't describe to people how I felt. And earlier in the book, I talk about actually going through an assault and being violated, but this was a different type of violation that I, I couldn't explain to people. I, there was no Reddit. I couldn't ask Reddit. Like this guy kind of like used me as racial novelty. What do I do? Right? Like you had Yahoo answers and nobody was asking that question. And I think it wasn't until I kind of started going into like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde and um, even white feminists like um, Julia Kristeva, like abject, like abjection and the other and uh, like the grotesque body that I was able to start seeing my experience in that. And so I kind of clung to feminist theory and literature as a way to um, provide, I guess, context to my experience in the same way they had done that for me. And so for this book, that moment where I'm actually, um, fetishized is what made me kind of decide, you know what, I'm actually going to become a journalist or a writer and I'm going to write about these things. Yeah, I, I, I that resonates with me a lot as well because um, I was, I, I similarly when I finished my undergrad degree um, at Queens, I left sort of feeling like, uh, like I didn't have a language. Um, and so I did, my major was in sciences, biology. And so unfortunately I, I didn't, I was, I didn't take any of those courses. I, I wasn't, um, I, I had no idea about what that, th that world looked like um, or what it looks like. And then it was only until I did my master's or after I left and I started reading my own stuff um, um, and, you know, became acquainted with Patricia Hill Collins, for example, that book that you write about in there, amazing piece of work. I, I felt like when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, these are all the words that I've been searching for. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I, I agree 100% around this idea of language. And I think, um, I think a lot of us do struggle um, to struggle for the language to describe our experiences, even for ourselves. Um, and to validate the fact that, you know, this is not all just happening in our heads. 
Um, that being said, you know, we also, um, we recognize that there's a particular experience that we might have or we've been encountering, um, but are still interested in dating and looking for love. <laughs> we're not just like, you know what, the world is anti-Black, and so therefore we're not going to engage. Uh, we don't have that choice. Um, and so what I want to know, you know, we talk a little bit about hookup culture in the book, um, and you know, that is being fueled a lot by dating apps, although, you know, people are using dating apps to find love as well. And so what I want to know is what are your thoughts on dating apps like Tinder, and particularly for Black people? Well, uh, we were talking about this a bit earlier before the event started, but um, we, we started university at the same time and Tinder had come out when we were in third year. And yeah, like, yeah, I was like, oh, like, hell no, I'm good. And I was actually seeing someone at the time, but all my friends were on Tinder and all my white girlfriends were getting engaged off Tinder and like having meaningful relationships. And I'm like, what is this clownery? Like, how can, you know, how would this work? And then when I was single, I had tried it and it was just horrific. And um, I think I ended up writing a piece about it for Vice, but I... The, the conversations I was already having at Western when I was out at nighttime from men, like that sexual racism was so much worse because people were hiding behind an avatar. Um, the comments were nasty. Um, that like that, that disclaimer of like, you know, black women are great in bed. All of that stuff was coming up again, but now it was coming up in this, in this, this so-called like love app to find love or hookups. And so it really turned me off for a long time. And I actually think I was just telling someone, I finally got the hang of Tinder, I feel like, and it's been about five years now. But I also think that has something to do with the environment that we're in. Um, I, I'm aware that as a Black woman, I'm aware that the research that OkCupid has done, other places have done, show that I'm going to get less matches. People think I'm less attractive than every other group of women. No one's going to respond to me, despite being attractive, educated, whatnot, however I see myself, it doesn't matter. And um, I kind of just decided, okay, well, that's fine. I'll see what happens. Um, but I think in the last couple of years, what's happened is, is weird parallels. One, there's been this rise or this obsession in, uh, with Black women, like Beyonce, Nicki Minaj, Rihanna. So that's been happening. Um, and then at the same time, we've had several movements. So in 2014, the messages were awful as we kind of contended with this polarized society of, you know, you're Black, you deserve to die versus unarmed people don't deserve to die. And then now I think we're at a place where those messages have kind of stopped. I feel like a lot of people are starting to kind of realize that it's wrong. I haven't actually had one of those awful messages since about 2015. So I think it's okay, but I'm still very skeptical because if I don't hear it on the app, I can still hear it in person. So it may be disguised another way, but it's kind of, you have to find out. But I still have not had like a real relationship off of Tinder, like my white girlfriends who are getting married off Tinder and okay, keep it. Yeah, I wonder the same thing as well. Like, where are, where are these, uh, what's happening? And why can't I uh, hack the system in this way? <laughs> <laughs> but to that question, though, and, and something that Lavi and I were thinking about is, like, is dating as a Black person in maybe small towns like this, you know, is it is it a lost cause in the sense of, you know, maybe folks aren't um, saying racist thing blatantly in the first match? 
but you know as you keep dating there's no like there's no intentionality behind it or or and so on and so forth or interactions with families as we've talked about um and and there was a video um from a tv show that lavia and i were watching as we were prepping for this uh prepping for this and they had made a com kind of a reference to and we, we we termed it as like anti-racism in the in the in the streets because now we know like lots of folks are practicing anti-racism you know as you're talking about now mm -hmm. or trying to practice anti-racism where people uh believes that black lives now matter and things like that uh but it might not really translate to practices like interpersonal like relational practices or you know advocacy or things like that and, and we just wanted to like talk about that a little bit like why do you like wh why would you say is there is a disconnect between both practices and maybe how can people be practicing anti-racism actively in their relationships as well yeah that's a great question too um well i always think that uh, i don't know if anyone else does this but when i'm on tinder and uh say for example there's a white guy because to be clear this is not just a white problem like i've dealt with the anti-black racism from other people of color and sometimes it's worse um, but i'll go through someone's photos and be like, do they have a black person in their photo? Like if they have a black person in the photo, they'll be okay with me, but they actually never are. They're never okay with me. It's, it's sometimes it's worse. It's like, how, like, how will I like ever, you know, date properly? So I think people, there seems to be a disconnect that between studying anti-black racism or anti-racism, having black friends and actually dating somebody who is black. And I think that when it gets to the stage where you date someone who is black, you kind of, it's almost, in my opinion, seen as an in. So it's like, well, because I'm with them inherently now, like I'm not racist and that you don't need to check yourself. And then the conversation becomes, well, you said something racist, but you don't think it's racist because you're with a black person. And so I think in that sense, there's so much unlearning to do. And like, I think there's, when we talk about privilege and white privilege, especially people get really defensive, but being in a relationship with somebody, you also need to check that privilege. It doesn't matter, you know, how hard you work. And, and we know this, that privilege has nothing to do with how hard you work. It's not an individual privilege. But I think in relationships, it's, it's hard for people to check themselves because they're now in a romantic relationship with someone as opposed to, you know, friendship. So um, I never really, I, I did date while I was in London in a smaller town, like, you know, in a in a predominantly white space. But what I found interesting was that I didn't really date any white people. And so I clung, it was like people of color clung to each other to date, but they were also perpetrators of racism. And so you couldn't really escape it anywhere because if you are just inherently like, you know, from your family, you've learned these things, you're also kind of internalizing it when you're a person of color in a white space because you, you have to internalize it to get through the environment and then you push it onto somebody else. So yeah, it, that sounds really dark. I'm like, there's no hope, but it, it kind of feels that way. I'm not sure what to do about it. It's really interesting because even like this discussion here makes me think about, I think maybe it was a year and a half ago, we went to a women, a black women's conference at OISI um, at U of T. Um, and one of the first sessions was on uh, dating and love or relationships. Um, and we had this worksheet that we had to go through. And the first question said, you know, what's the one thing that is that you will not compromise for uh, on for in a relationship or with your partner? And I thought to myself, I was like, oh, gosh, I've never actually given that thought. Um, and of course, I, I think a lot of people said the, the traditional things like, you know, communication or honesty or fidelity and so on. 
Um, and my answer was anti-racism. And for me, yeah, I think yeah. through my, my experiences and being in relationships is I could, I don't think I could ever be with somebody that denied my experience as a black woman. Um, and so whether that was direct or indirect. Um, and so I'm fortunate that I have a partner who, who checks that off for me, um, but recognizing, and I, I have so many stories of friends who have tried to push that in their relationships and because of privilege um, or not necessarily this being a commonplace conversation, um, their partner's kind of just waving that away. And that person having to make the decision of like, well, do I stay with them or do I try and find somebody else who might just be as just as bad? <laughs> I think it is, uh, uh, but I just wanted to quickly comment on that, that for me, I think that's how I see, like, I, I, I haven't experienced, like, receiving messages that are quite, like, you know, racist uh, uh, from a get-go, but it's interactions where, say, I'm talking about, like, the police, or I'm talking about, you know, you know, for example, I, I had, I was talking to someone, and they're, like, for me, like, the most important, like, fight is, um, it's climate justice, like not like like you know, it's it's at the top, and and you know, conversations like that already, I start getting like agitated because I'm like, how am I about to like you know have this conversation with somebody that is questioning or is denying the existence of, of racism and and the importance of anti-racism? So it's almost shifting that in 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 a sense in in conversations and the intensity and the emotions almost that even come from having conversations like this with white with white folks or even non-black folks. Yes, I've actually had a lot of these conversations with black with black folks and with black men in particular, which really shocked me because I thought, okay, well, I will I want to be with someone who gets my experience, and I actually find that a lot of the pushback I get is from other black people, and they're like, mm, but you know, not everything is about race, or like, um, I think there are bigger issues, or I don't see race as an issue, or I've had one experience, and then you kind of feel ashamed. So you're like. Did I make everything about race or not? But then when you you have people, good people, you know, people who are like you around you, they validate your experiences. And so it feels like from every end, it's difficult, but it also feels like the added layer of being a woman and being like, well, racism, then I look angry and I look entitled. And it's just this never ending battle of like, you know, um, like how much is enough? Can I talk about race as a black person? Is it okay? And you're kind of always putting out feelers, but you're never sure what you're going to get back. Yeah, I definitely did that with everybody that I dated. I would just throw in something there about like race. And uh, I remember being in a car with a guy I was dating and his friends. And I was like, you know, like if you guys were like driving and smoking marijuana and the cops pulled you over, you'd probably get a warning. But if it were black guys, they'd be in jail. Um, and they're like, oh, you know, what do you mean? And then that by that response, I was like, OK, you know, this is <laughs> not going to work for me. And, you know, kind of try to move on from there. Um, but I, I see that we have a question from the audience. I don't mind. I hope you don't mind if I just pop that in here. Um, it's from Sosin Mohammed, um, and she asks, "Have you ever had the experience of hypermasculization if you don't adhere to the typical heteronormativity um, or the oversexual black woman archetype?" So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, what she is trying to say is if you don't fit into what people assume a black woman sexual identity is do does it does the reverse happen where you're kind of made to be treated more like a, a man 
or um, become like more masculine rather than feminine. Um, and so she gives the example of women like Serena Williams being called a monkey or a man or like being really strong and, and ugly and so on. Yeah, it's uh, it's a that's a really great question because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and like, why do I like when I'm dating, do I like, I always feel more like more masculine. Like I flick on the switch of being more masculine, being more bro-y because it feels like a defense mechanism. And um, like, I wouldn't say I'm entirely, like I'm very feminine anyways, but um, it's become this defense mechanism because I'm so used to, like I already know what happens when I don't adhere to that. And I've seen it go like from zero to 60 very, very quickly where I'm being hit on. Someone's like, hey ma, hey boo, what's going on? And I'm like, you know, like F off. And they're like, okay, black bitch. And I know what it goes to. And then immediately you have to get defensive. And most defense mechanisms, that kind of like, like hostility is very, it's a very masculine um, kind of trait. Um, and so I feel like I'm always used to being on the defense or fighting. And so that happens a lot to me when I was at Western and I go out at nighttime, my friend who's in the book with me, she's, uh, she's brown, but and she's, she's right about the same color, but she wasn't black. And so I saw the ways that guys would treat her very differently. Like if she was in their way, they kind of like, gently nudged her they buy her drinks and she was going on first dates and second dates i was in the same place i was getting shoved i was getting pushed people were throwing their drinks on me yelling in my face um the amount of times that men tried to fight me for either being like don't you know don't touch my friend or i'm not interested there's one part in the book where a guy it's actually a black guy he tries to run me over with his car because i said stop touching my friend and he was like we're just jealous because like i want to talk to your friend so I think like I'm used to that language with men or like putting us like becoming like making myself hyper masculine because I'm already seen as I'm not even seen as a woman, I'm not seen as a human. I'm certainly not seen as a woman. I'm just kind of seen as this kind of almost it feels almost like an animal, like pushed and shoved out of the way. Um, there's no kind of being treated like a lady, so to speak. So um, it's something I'm very used to. And I use it actually as a defense mechanism just to get through interactions with with men, especially. And I think connected to that, you're saying, you know, that's your defense mechanism, but towards the end of the book, you talk a lot about having a sisterhood and a place where you can be soft and vulnerable and like, you know, share these similar experiences and have these walls come down where it's not really, we're not really able to do that anywhere else. Um, and so, you know, thinking about that um, and, the fact that you were able to cultivate that sisterhood for yourself in London, um, you know, what advice would you have for black women who are entering university or who already here? Because you also mentioned a lot about having friends, black women saying, you know, I just, I can't take it here anymore. I need to leave. I don't care about this degree anymore. Um, and likewise, I think I know a handful, even more black women, who made the same decision um, about Queens. Um, and so how, how can we cultivate that if we're just moving into cities uh, like London, like Kingston, um, and you know, we don't know anyone? Yeah, I, there's a couple of things that I always tell young black women and just kind of um, young people of color starting this for the first time. The first is that you need to ask questions even if you're there, I know it's kind of late now, but ask questions. When I chose London, I was so excited I was going somewhere. I would talk to everybody and strangers and people would be like, but there's no black people in 
in London. Like, why are you going there? Like, my brother, my cousin, my sister, twice removed, has like gone there. Why are you there? And I was like, oh, and I never asked questions. And I wish I had asked. And um, now you can like, you can go anywhere and find someone who will tell you. If you want to know about if that place is racist, you, you will know. And um, at the same time, I never looked into London. Uh, all I knew was that it was two hours away. Um, I think I knew that like Rachel McAdams was born there or something. And that was it. And the year before I had gone there, hate crimes had gone up in the city and I had no idea. So I think people think because you're going to be in first year, you're going to be in res. Um, most of your time is going to be spent out in the city. And that's something you don't know. And I think in the terms of friendship and sisterhood, the most important two things for me was one, joining groups that I cared about and I loved. So joining like, the, the Western group, which is um, like a violence against women group. So doing the stuff that I loved, uh, joining feminist groups, organizing, and then trying to find friendship and, and holding that friendship really closely and dearly were what got me through. And everyone is so afraid, especially in first year, especially now with COVID, everyone's so nervous. You can talk to anyone and make a friend. And I think it's important that you, the friends that you have, they have your back. They don't have to be other black women, but they have to have your back and they have to be really good allies and doing the work and consistently doing it. And when they mess up, admitting it. Um, and if I didn't have that, and I didn't have the groups that I loved, um, even friends back home to keep in touch with, I don't think I would have made it. And I think when we're this age, um, a lot of us have really toxic values or beliefs when it comes to friendship. We have very phony friendships. Hold your friendships dear. Friendships will get you through this time. It's like, it's like building your community. And I think that that is real. I mean, I mean there's on one hand, anti-racism work, but there's also black liberation work. And for black people, I think that that is a really about building strong communities around us. Um, and part of me as well also thinks um, that, you know, the differences between, because racism happens in Toronto too. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that the differences is, is that there are more numbers in Toronto of black people, of racialized people. So there's sort of an insulation. So you might have a racist experience, but it might not be as repetitive as it is if you're one of 20 in a city uh, of uh, like Kingston or, or, or London. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that is really core to that, the sisterhood, but also expanding that to like a community and how do we how do we build that insulation around us? How do we build things for ourselves? Um, I think is, is quite key. Yes, yeah. And even going into the, you know, the outside part of, you don't have to be on campus. There are endless groups outside, especially in places like Kingston and London. People know what that's like and we're out there. It's just you have to go looking for them outside of the campus. Absolutely. I want to ask, um, I don't know how much time we have on Graham. I don't know if you're getting questions in the, in the Q&A as well, but I want to ask one question that, that really like stands out to me and, and I want to hear from you around this is that at the start of your book, you have a Zora Neale Hurston quote that says, if you're silent about your pain, uh, they will kill you and say you enjoyed it. Um, and, you know, as many of us doing anti-racism work, as many of us being like very little black folks in spaces, it's, it's important that we speak up about like our experiences and about the pain and about the injustices, you know, and I think many folks are doing it right now. And it's tough because 
there are there's many risks uh, that come with with speaking up there's many repercussions that come with speaking up as well um but in your book you talk about anger and that was the one piece i was like yes let's talk about this um <laughs> and, and validating the role of anger in seeking justice and and in speaking truth so i'm curious like how have you utilized anger in your work or and what are some unconventional ways that you have expressed your anger in this yeah, I, um, I love talking about anger as a transformative tool. I think it's great. And um, it's been around forever because Audrey, Audrey Lorde had her keynote, um, The Uses of Anger, and spoke about this. And um, by the time I got to second year and I was telling people back home, I was telling my family who had experienced anti-brown racism but not anti-black racism, everyone was like, I think you're exaggerating. You're becoming super militant. Why are you always angry? Um, one of these days, you're going to get yourself killed because you're so angry. And that didn't help. It just made me angrier. And I was kind of ashamed that I was angry. But at the same time, when I developed that, like, that, that rage, it was like the only thing that protected me in my environment. So if I heard a stupid comment, being that angry was, gave me a chance to kind of talk back or defend myself. And um, towards the end of the book, when I talk about the uses of anger, um, Audre Lorde said that for women of color, Black women in particular, we, we, our anger together becomes this collective tool where we can grieve. So it is about being soft, but it's also about taking that anger and using it to make change and turning it into passion. And the difference in Black women's anger versus the anger we see with um, white men, for example, or um, extremists or white extremists, is that um, that anger seeks to harm. Our anger seeks to change. We're angry because of the circumstances. We're angry because of our history. We're angry because of the way that we're treated in this country. And we use that to change that nobody else has to be angry. And that other anger is always put on us. That, that anger of other people turns into danger. So um, for me, being angry and then being angry for my friends and us talking about how angry and fed up we were, which is a, a mix of actual, you know, being hard, being angry and being vulnerable was the reason I was able to write this book. Um, and I think it wasn't actually until I submitted my last draft last year where I realized I was still so angry and I had no idea and people don't understand that that anger eats you alive but when I started to write the book and then use it creatively or you know have these discussions and, and talk about it it became healing but on my own and kind of keeping it to myself was actually destroying me and that's what some people want right like they want to keep us in this angry black woman box and they just want to push us aside and um that's not what our anger is about our anger is actually a lot to do with grief yes to all of that so powerful. <laughs> um you. yeah i i graham i'm wondering if we have any if we have space well, we, for we have a number of questions and I, I know there might have been a few more questions that you all had intended to discuss, but we'll maybe we could veer over to audience questions and see if that leads into there and if there's time afterwards. So sure. let's start with a question from uh, Vanessa, and it's sort of looping back to uh, earlier in the presentation. Uh, Eternity, you name sexual racism, uh, and uh, this audience member hadn't thought about naming various racisms specifically. How, why do you think it is important to name uh, specific racisms in this way? Yeah, 
that's a great question. I think it's, um, it's incredibly important to name racism, not just for allies and other people, but for ourselves and we're experiencing it. And I think that's what a lot of this conversation has been about is not knowing what it is, but ha- and not having the language for it and then becoming all the more powerful and knowledgeable when you have that language and when you're able to use that language in conversations with other people. And sexual racism was actually something I had heard kind of long after I had experienced this at, at Western. But I think the naming of it, especially for Black people, is kind of what liberates us. Until then, you're kind of in the space where you don't know what's happening. You don't know how you feel about something. You feel it and you trust yourself, but then you start to gaslight yourself because you're like, is this real? And um, so sexual experience was allowed me to be like, well... I'm like on dating apps and these guys are being racist, but it's also kind of sexually tinged. What is that? Ah, it's sexual racism. And um, I had done a story recently on maternal mortality and how black women are three to five times more likely to die in childbirth and birth than white women. And I had learned the term obstetric racism. I'm like, ah, that makes sense because what is this racism called? And um, I think, especially in this environment, having that language, it's, it's good for all of us. And then it allows us to kind of divide up you know, what types there are, because there are so many, and the word racism has kind of lost its meaning. So having this, the different types kind of also exposes just how prevalent or pervasive it is. You are muted. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, there's two questions now that I want to sort of pair together. Um, and I think, uh, we have an incredible panel, uh, not just Eternity, but Mofi and Lavi, to, to look at this topic. Um, first, uh, from Kelly. Uh, Kelly recognizes the theme tonight is uh, love and relationships. However, uh, if you have the capacity and time, could you share your experiences about uh, naviga- navigating the experience of tokenization and being taken advantage of in equity work within the academic industrial complex. And maybe we could pair that with Tom who asks, can you speak about the importance of universities collecting race-based data on students? Those are great questions. Lavi and Mofi, do you want to take the, I feel like you're a bit more in that kind of sphere of, um, I could be wrong, but I think this is a good one for you both. Yeah, sure. Um, Mofi, do you want to go take a stab at it first? Oh, you want me to do it first. Okay. Um, (laughs) I mean, I guess in the question of being tokenized in equity work, um, I think that there are, it depends on on the decisions that you make, I guess, uh, on one hand, because there aren't, or there haven't been um, typically a lot of people who have been doing equity work. Equity work for a really long time was work that was done on the side of desks um, of, of many of people within institutions or organizations. Um, maybe sometime they'd have the odd uh, consultant come in and talk about you know, what it is that the organization needs to do better in order to be more diverse or welcoming or use words like belonging. Um, and so for me, um, when I got into this work or my decision to enter this work was very, um, very targeted towards anti-racism work. And I was quite specific 
in what I wanted to do. Um, and so, I mean, fortunately, I have a fantastic team that I work with um, where I don't feel like a token person on the team who's like, oh, hey, Lavi, like you happen to be the only racialized person here. So why don't you do this? Um, or why don't you, you know, come up with X for our department or organization or institution? Um, um, unfortunately, and I, I know that that's not the experience for a lot of people. Um, and <clears throat> I think that this is a conversation that's blooming as well um, in terms of figuring out how to, um, how to engage our people who are committed to equity um, and but also making sure that we're recognizing the work for what it is and not necessarily you know checking that box i think it's the difference between substantive equity work for example versus uh equity work to just make it look like we're doing something mofi do you have any additional thoughts i don't know if that answered your question but well, i'll just sorry i'll just qualify from the audience member uh they were talking about the experience uh, as a student, I guess. So, so I guess what might be called like scholastic racism. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a student, um, I don't know that when I was a student that this was highly sought after. <laughs> um, I think as a student, the stuff that I did um, was purely about supporting each other um, and trying to survive um, the trying to survive the environment. Um, it was never my plan to return to Kingston. Um, and so I think for us, it was, it was purely a survival thing. Um, but we weren't, we, weren't, we weren't engaged that way with the institution when I was a student. Yeah, I, 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 can't, I, I don't have, uh, when I think of, of tokenized experiences, I, I think of many students that, that I work with as well. And, and in this time, um, you know, equity work, anti-racism work from, from what I see is in some senses, as Lavi was talking about, used to be at the side of many people's desks. It used to be work that students were organizing to do. And at a point in this moment, institutions are, you know, uh, virt virtual signaling in a way that, that they want to do, they want to do this work. And what that looks like, you know, in many, in many senses is, is co-opting knowledge and also even relationships that have been built. Um, so, so for, for example, if I talk about my experience, you know, it's, it's, and, and being in a space where I'm the only black person, I'm the only person doing not even anti, like it's not even titled anti-racism in the sense, but, you know, diversity and inclusion work. Um, and I think of relationship building that's at the core of a lot of this work that needs to be done, you know, and community building. And in an institution uh, like this, um, co-opting all of that and using it for the benefits of the institution. So there's a quote that I was, I was listening to a podcast recently, um, and uh, it's called uh, historically, historically told, I think, I think blanking, but it says like institutions in today's white supremacist settler colonial context will always come in peace and goodwill, 
They always tell us that they mean well and thus refuse to own their endless violence against Black people. And I, and I think about this in, talk, in, like in tokenizing the work and tokenizing equity work is that there's no truth currently that's being, that's being told. And institutions aren't telling the truth in, in, in the efforts or in the, intense, or in the intentionality behind a lot of anti-racism and equity work. And that's how I see um, a lot of uh, work that students do um, get tokenized and get used for for the for the institution and turning i don't know if you have any experience doing organizing work while you were at western or or just in general i i do and i think for for me because i was organizing i was doing like you know tape back the night slut walk um i had organized for colored girls as a play um in organizing but then i went into journalism and then i couldn't organize because that's kind of just it goes against what you're supposed to do but um in keeping with quotes and to answer the, the second part of that about race-based data i always think about the brilliant quote which is often overused by audrey lord which is the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house um and we're still using the master's tools and that's why we're not dismantling the house and so when it comes to race-based data we don't have we've been begging for race-based data in every kind of aspect all these this, this data about being black and mental health or maternal mortality or being shot by police we know this from the us because they collect it and then when it comes to campuses and university and academia we don't have any race-based data to tell us how many students are students of color how many um you know what are their needs what are their challenges so and recently, um, I was on the National talking about, um, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's, uh, there's like a summit of universities are coming together to put together some kind of like action plan to deal with racism. And in my book, I talk about this, which is, it's just weird how everything goes so quickly, but I said, there's no unified policy to deal with racism. There's no unified policy across campus to deal with sexual assault. Every school has the, the leisure to do what they want. And um, every school hides behind well, we have this equity and inclusion office. When you're a first year student and you're scared of your own shadow, you're not gonna know what the equity and inclusion office is. The things that are in your face are binge drinking, sexual assault. If you're a student who's dealing with intimate partner violence, there's nothing on campus. If you're dealing with racist acts, there's nothing on campus because equity and inclusion is about filing, um, a lot of times about filing human rights complaints. And what we're seeing in Canada is hate crimes. They hit a record high in 2017. They go up, they go down. They mostly affect black people um, and Jewish people um, and L the LGBTQ2S community. So if I have nowhere, if this is going up on campus, but they don't go against the law and I have nowhere to report them and there's no resources to deal with someone telling me to go back to my country or calling me the N-word and we don't collect race-based data. So no one even knows I exist. Um, there is a, a perfect storm of issues. And so when I say the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house, we're now coming together, but what does that mean? What, like, what will the formal policy look like? What is, who's going to report, is there a board? Um, what will these policies actually look like? So um, we have a long way to go. And when we talk about anti-Black racism, we've often talked about it in terms of police brutality, but we never talk about it when it comes to academia and, um, and students and student life. So I hope that it comes up in the next couple of years, but we're so focused. It's like as a society, we can only focus on one thing. And right now it's police brutality. And uh, I'm hoping we get to the point where we're actually starting to be like, well, there's actually brutality in a number of ways and violation in a number of ways on our campuses. 
And I just want to take a second because I think both of those things resonate really well in terms of broadening it to the state level, right? The state is so culpable in all of what does go on. Um, and so if we talk about tokenizing, um, tokenizing this work or tokenizing equity work, um, the state is number one in doing that. Um, and I can think, uh, you know, of Kingston itself, there, that, that students and community members came together about uh, when I was in undergrad to create the Black History Month opening ceremonies. And what does the city do? Oh, the mayor shows up and says like, yeah, this is what I'm doing for Black History Month. Um, but yeah, sorry, uh, actually, you, you, you don't even, you know, know how many Black people live here or what are the issues that Black people are facing in the city. Uh, but you can show up to, um, you can show up to our Black History Month opening ceremony and give yourself a pat on the back. Um, and so I think it's constantly being mindful of like, who are we doing this work for? And making that active choice for yourself and saying like, this is the reason why I'm doing this work. It's for me, it's for my people. So that we're, that we're, we're able to get through it um, and that we're pulling for each other. Um, and so that's where I, I guess, ground myself in the work that I do. Um, and even connected to your book, Eternity, um, towards the end, you, you, you talk about, again, meeting with these Black women and talking about um, your experiences in London and, and, and at Western. Uh, and you say it itself, you say the consensus was that we weren't getting what we needed at Western, academically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I think that that is okay to recognize because once we're able to put our finger on it, then we're able to make um, the decisions that work for us in terms of our way through it without letting it break us really. Yeah, absolutely. And making those decisions, like you said, for us, because there's nobody knows what's right for us, but us. And um, if there's nothing in place, we have to make those decisions despite there being pushback, despite nobody understanding it. Um, which has been our whole kind of conversation about trusting yourself and your intuition and knowing what's best for you, despite being in an environment where um, nobody knows what's best for you. Sometimes people don't even know you exist. Sorry, we have a question uh, from Jenny. Uh, and she would like to hear from Eternity about the inserts of the necessary survival guide for token students that is thread throughout the book, uh, which is very effective and creative. And Jenny's wondering how it came to be. Sure. Um, so actually, that is um, the remainder of one of my first chapters that I refused to get rid of. And uh, I had written it as kind of the way that you see it, which is kind of, it doesn't match the rest of the book. And my editor said, well, this doesn't fit in the book. Why don't we try it as interstitials? And um, I thought it was a perfect idea. I hadn't really seen it. The only time I had seen something like a page break like that was in another book by a Canadian author, Sashi Cool. One day we'll all be dead and none of this will matter. Um, where she like has it with her dad, emails from her dad. And so I thought, well, to me, I have to fight for this chapter because the book is so dark at times. And weird fact, up until the last draft, I thought my book was a comedy. I thought it was gonna be like in the comedy section. And I think that, that says a lot about um, the ways that we kind of survive. Like we use humor and laughter and you forget that what you're going through is so dark. But um, that was supposed to kind of bring some really cheeky, like tongue in cheek, dear white people-esque um, humor to the book. 
and replicate the kind of conversations that we have with our other black friends when we're in this environment when you're like did, like did someone just call me that or like you know like are we talking about like did i just get pointed out to talk about race for the whole group like it's supposed to be that and um it's supposed to help kind of students going through this right now have a laugh and i think so much of what we talk about when we talk about the black experience is about pain and um i wanted it to be this moment of joy and um almost this kind of like menacing kind of humor where like there's like a part where um in the class when when um and these are all things that have happened to me and friends of mine but where the teacher's like what can we do to combat racism and you say by any means necessary like these are things that white people are afraid of but it's it's funny to us and that's how we kind of get our kicks and um you just kind of have to laugh so i was very um adamant that we have that in the book and it be some bit somewhere I thought that these uh, these were actually great tips that people should actually do because how hilarious, not just hilarious, but like also in, in a way empowering to kind of be like, I know that people aren't expecting me to do this and I'm going to do it anyway and see what their reaction is. <laughs> yes, I actually would wear my roommate's slippers. I would paint my toes her color, I'd wear her socks. Um, so yeah, this is all real life. I've tr tried and tested. <laughs> Sorry, uh, let's see. Uh, Eternity, uh, this is another one from Tom. Do you have any thoughts on the intersection of religion, racism, and sexuality? Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts. Um, there's this really good book called Eloquent Rage, which is by a professor, a, women's, a black woman, and she's a women's studies professor. Her name is Brittany C. Cooper. And she actually talks about, the whole book is about black women and anger. But she also talks about the ways that religion has played a massive role in our anger and our own oppression. And um, I think that, I mean, I'm not a very religious person. I grew up Catholic. Um, but I think that man-made religion or people interpret religion the ways that they want. But I also think that religion has been complicit in some ways in, um, in, kind of uh, perpetrating anti-Black racism, uh, perpetrating oppression, and um, we don't talk about that enough. And um, I know this book that I'm talking about, she talks about the Black church and the ways that the Black church has um, pushed this idea that your, like, your race comes before your gender, which we also see um, when it comes to partner violence, a lot of Black women don't, uh, they choose not to report um, their abuser because they have to put their, their race before their gender and then they get punished if they don't. So there are many ways I think that religion has um, kind of, is an intersection in itself and has oppressed people based on different, different identities. Um, but it's an interesting one for sure. I would love to see more on that. I don't know if anyone else has any thoughts. No particular thoughts. Well, I mean, I have lots of thoughts about religion <laughs> and race, but um, you know, none that I've actually really worked through. I think that um, in my experience and groups that I've been part of, <clears throat> like I2M Sussex, which was a, a group that I was part of um, um, in the UK, um, where we talked a lot about race, we talked a lot about gender, sexuality, and so on. Uh, and we wanted to hold a, a, a conversation about religion and race. And all of the, I guess, the people who were facilitators who were regularly doing that we were kind of like i don't know if that's territory that we want to get into because of how i think for a lot of black people they like religion or the black church has been their kind of saving grace 
from white society. Um, and so it is it's such a complex discussion, really. But I think it's so needed. And if anyone wants to have that conversation, you can, hit, you can find me. I'm, I'm ready to do it. <laughs> um, and I think as well, like even around the question of like, you know, black women having to choose their race over their gender or that, 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 that being like a discussion or, or a decision that black women um, intrinsically, I think, whether they're, they're uh, taught it or have had discussions about it, um, sometimes engage in. Um, and it reminds me of the most recent case um, that we see playing out in social media or has played out in social media with Meg Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez. Um, and, you know, her saying like, I didn't want to go to the police because I know what the police do to black men and I wanted to protect him. And like thinking about myself and like, if I were in her shoes, I'm sure that those were the first, those, that would have been my first thought as well. I don't want to be the cause of this man's death. Um, even though he like egregiously hurt her, like violently, <laughs> I don't know. So it's so, um, is so interesting. I actually wrote a paper on that um, in my master's and I think it's incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry. Okay. Just sorry, quickly, um, we've had a request uh, to, uh, from Sausen to uh, say a word or two and this is a, a great young person in our community. Uh, sorry. Um, I just wanted to speak about like being black and like being queer just from like the Kingston perspective um, and like also being religious. What happens is, is that in a lot of minority groups because they're minorities, they don't really understand like the intersectionality of, within that minority. So for example, last year during Pride, or no, two years ago during Pride, I think, um, there was a lot of, um, problems with BIPOC representation during Pride within Kingston. Um, so like, I remember at one point they had asked someone that was Indigenous, but actually Indigenous South American to do the land acknowledgement rather than a Haudenosaunee. Um, and also in like, thing, like sexual liberation movements, like the Me Too movement or um, like the Stonewall riots, we see the erasure of like black innovators within them. So like there were black women at the head of suffrage movements. Susan, like Susan B. Anthony was racist. Like there were white suffragettes that were advocating against black suffrage. Um, and yeah, uh, like the people that started the Stonewall riots were black trans women um, and they weren't talked about. So yeah, there's there's a lot to say, and you know, black trans women are more likely to be killed, um, like, like just through hate crime, um, than a lot of other groups. Sorry, a little hiccup on the mics there. People are still hearing this. Um, well, we don't have any more questions. Uh, we've got about seven minutes. I don't know if I should go there and ask the question you probably get a lot, Eternity, and that is the COVID question. Uh, 
so, because your memoir is about how racism experience is experienced in a space as a racist response to your presence as a student of color. So given that so many university students are presently attending school virtually, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how racism operates against student of color in virtual settings and how those students can build community and sisterhood under these sorts of conditions. Yeah, it's a weird time because I think a lot of what I talk about, like you said, in the space is, um, is literally being in the space and a reaction to me being in the space. But I, I don't know if that changes much for COVID because if you're in first year, you might be going on campus. And I think in a way it almost is worse because these conversations that were like shamelessly happening in class are now happening in an internet space where they're popping up in a chat. The chat has to be moderated. Um, if I'm an instructor at Ryerson, so, you know, I'm very much against having these groups, like, you know, having a Facebook group, having things that I can't watch, where it's made my job much harder, having your Zoom bombed. Um, and so I think it's very difficult in that way. But um, what I'm really encouraging people to do is to still reach out. And one thing that makes me very sad this year, I've noticed in my own class, is that it's so hard for people to communicate with each other. Like I'm talking to a class and I'm like, get in your groups and nobody knows who anybody is. And um, a lot of times the Zoom, like the private chat is, is taken off with good reason. But um, you know, I think it's worth a lot of people who are in this position right now, reaching out to other people, having a virtual coffee. Um, obviously, we're not even going to be able to socially distance, at least here in Toronto, have socially distance hangs anytime soon. Um, but getting to know people in that way and building that friendship in that way, because I think right now everybody is incredibly vulnerable and afraid and it's heightened and unsure. And now is a really good time to kind of meet people and, um, solidify kind of um you know build that army of of, of good friends of, of people who can support you during this time oh i think there's um i had a question i don't know if uh, if you had this graham um but somebody asked me where i can purchase the book if you're not in the kingston area right well um i i had answered that through chat i would yeah. I had assumed that the uh, audience member was in Kingston. Uh, so for members of the Kingston community, uh, you can get the book through the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. We have many copies in print and uh, digital formats. Uh, then you could also uh, get it at Novel Idea, our local bookstore, or even Chapters Indigo or online. So to the audience member, uh, who asked about that, who was not in Kingston, I'd suggest checking out the library there, your local bookstore, uh, or a uh, other brick and mortar thing. And then I suppose uh, you can order it online too. Yes, and there's also an audiobook book um, oh, narrated by me. So you can hear me when you're doing, when you're cleaning. So, uh, well, there's, there's one more question, but we only have about three minutes left. So maybe, um, okay, so we'll just ask this and if we could, you know, pretty quickly. Um, and that is, um, 
could we talk about how to mobilize anger? I really appreciated the discussion around anger, but find that people, especially white folks with a power discrepancy, will continuously disregard my valid points because I'm angry and crying. How do you address white fragility while still healthily channeling valid and useful anger? Well, um, I teach people when, um, I get this question a lot and I think there's, a lot of times when we're having these conversations, we kind of lose our boundaries um, and we end up doing a lot of the emotional labor. So at least in my opinion, I don't know if Mofi and Lavi have any other advice, but um, if people, at this point in my life, if people um, want to dismiss me or disregard what I'm saying, I leave it be. Um, I can't do the emotional labor of having to explain something to people anymore. It makes me even angry and it makes me sick. And I think at this point, now that I've been through this so, so many times of being dismissed by other people or having my anger kind of ridiculed and seeing the effect, um, like the physical and mental health effects of that, um, I just kind of, I'm okay with it. I think we have to be okay with that anger. And if we're uncomfortable, being okay with that discomfort and leaving it be. And one thing I've done myself is if I'm saying something and I'm like, you know, this can't believe this happened and a white person or any person says, well, um, you know, it's really not that bad. Give it a week, give it a month, give it a year. Someone else is going to say the same thing. And it's going to get repeated over and over and over again. And by then they're going to be so far in my past that they can do the emotional labor of you know, sorting that out themselves as to why they were so dismissive in the first place. And unfortunately, I think that's going to happen a lot. People who don't validate you right now will one day validate your experiences, but they have to also learn for themselves. And you have to take care of you. I couldn't have said it better. I 100% agree. And yeah. I think Luffy was just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. I think at the core of it all is, is the self. And at the core of it all is liberation for self. So being able to create that safety and, 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 and space for ourselves. But like, I find anger for me. I'm angry. And, and that's what it is. Uh, but yeah, 100. Yes. Um, there, there was a little, I don't know if I have a couple of minutes. I just wanted to address, um, excuse me if I get this name wrong, uh, uh, Swasen, um, the comment about, um, like queerness and race and religion. Um, cause I actually worked at extra for four years. I was a senior editor there, which is the only LGBTQ2S publication in Canada. And, um, you know, it came up a lot about this, but there's like a part of my book actually. So I'm bisexual and it never came up in my book and i think it had a lot to do with the intersection of race and um at the last minute i actually took it out and we didn't really get into this but when we talk about sexuality in this context i think when you're black and you're a woman and there's so many already intersecting identities and people already see you as hypersexual adding on being bisexual being queer being trans um, it adds this whole other layer of oppression that you are sometimes not prepared to deal with. And I think that we don't talk about that enough as well. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure that that comment, that comment wasn't kind of just left at the wayside, but um, there's a lot, and there's also a lot of um, anti-blackness in queer communities. And as someone who's worked at Extra, I've seen that um, in the village in Toronto, very white space. A lot of times if you're black and queer, or you're black and trans, you're not even welcome there. And so, um, there are many intersecting identities and issues that come with being black that we still have to talk about and name eventually. Like, I think hopefully one day we have a name for all of these things. 
Well, um, it's 8.02 and the library building is now, that I'm broadcasting from is now closed and they're gonna kick me out. Um, so I think we'll wrap it there, um, but uh, thank you to the panelists, thank you to Eternity, and thank you for everyone to co for coming. Um, I will note that uh, it's gonna take a minute to, well, a minute, a few days, for us to work this out, but we've been recording um, the, the event and the audio itself will reappear on uh, a podcast organized by Studies for National and International Development at CFRC. So um, perhaps we can communicate with all uh, attendees to share the link to that when it's live. So, so I, I don't want to end this here, but I'll pass it on to the other panelists in Eternity. But I just want to thank uh, Eternity for uh, participating, for agreeing to come give this talk. The book is wonderful. It was a great read and, and something that I encourage everyone uh, here tonight to read. And uh, thank you, Lavi and Mofi, for, for making the suggestion. Uh, it, I think it was Mofi who first suggested the book. and and I went and got it that day. Uh, and this has been a really wonderful conversation. Thanks to all of you. And now I pass it on to you to wrap it up. Or uh, Yeah, I, I could just say a quick thank you. Thank you to Eternity uh, for, for being here with us. I just want to say, please come back. There's so much. Of so course. Much. We need to unpack more and more. So we would love to have you back here again. Um, and again, thank you to the library for continuing to partner with Black Luck and, and as we continue to create space here in Kingston and for Black folks, um, we just want to say, please connect with us. We want to continue, as we've talked about community so much, um, we are here and we want to, you know, take up space in the city and, and continue to build our community here. So reach out to us on Facebook and we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about how we can continue to develop this. Thank you. Yeah, I also just want to say a quick thank you and echo what Mofi said and what Graham said. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and we can't wait to see what's up next for you, Eternity. Um, but also in terms of connecting, you know, our, our movements across Ontario, across Canada, uh, and across the globe. Um, because this is this is this is really an entry point into that. Uh, that's something that has been going on for a very long time. And, you know, we really want to push forward and take forward towards Black liberation. So thank you very much. Thank you. It was so great to meet you all. And thank you everyone for joining. Um, thank you so much for having me.